1: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack,
2: today's World War Two Day, So I, of course, am incredibly excited. I'm also really excited because I've got a friend of mine on board and we're going to be talking about something that we don't really talk much about during the Second World War and I'm so eager to learn more. We've got with us Mark Conahan, who is a historian and archaeologist. He's currently working on a subject, like I said, we just don't talk about during the Second World War. And, ladies and gentlemen, he is going to absolutely blow your mind. We're going to be talking about the Blitz. I can just hear you saying, yeah, I know, we know about the Blitz, we talk about the Blitz, but we don't talk about this part of the Blitz, let alone I don't know much about this part of the Blitz. And we're talking about the Blitz in Scotland. More specifically, we're going to be talking about Glasgow. Welcome, Mark, to our podcast. Thank
3: you for having me on, Alina.
2: I'm really, really looking forward to this one because we, we, we did, we were hashing out what, what you should talk about because you do archaeology as well, don't you? You're not just a historian talking about the Blitz.
3: No, I started uh, with doing my master's degree in conflict archaeology and then moved on to do my PhD in conflict archaeology. So technically, you know, my focus is archaeology, but it's a lot more history when it comes to talking about Clyde Clydeside and the Blitz.
2: Do you know, I had a dream the other night, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, I had a dream that I went on an excavation, uh, because originally I was supposed to be a classical archaeologist. That is, that was my main focus. And then I obviously became a a modern, uh, a very modern historian. And uh, I think um, I think something's trying to tell me, either, Elena, go become an archaeologist again, or, Elena, mm. get the holes digging out of the way, or, Elena, you're just dreaming. What do you think?
3: Well, whatever, whatever you want to do. I mean, I started off digging some holes and things like that and found out I like to talk more about history and talk about archaeology than I actually do, getting down on my knees and hurting my poor old knees, trying to dig holes and do all that stuff, so... I've it's been told age. that my trial work is absolutely awful so I mean obviously I should stick to writing and talking about it then.
2: It's it's age really for you isn't it? It is age. It must
3: be because I'm, I'm quite old.
2: Yeah. Oh, such an ancient gentleman you are. Yes I, I, I'm a lofty 48 years old Oh, all over the all over the hill oh do not quote me on that ladies and gentlemen i do not think people in their 40s are old because i'm not far behind mark but look let's uh let's do some blitz chatting um you're really like you're really good at this because we spent when we were prepping we spent a lot of time and for me to try and summarize and put questions out of this was really difficult (laughs)
3: What that means is I can't actually keep things precise and I talk too much, Alina. I think that's what you're politely saying there.
2: Let me put it this way. For this subject, it is not not a bad thing because you've got so much to tell us and so much to say. So we'll start off with the first question. So like, like I've mentioned previously, we all know what the Blitz was, but it wasn't just confined to England. Scotland was also targeted. So let's have an overview of this. Where was Scotland actually bombed?
3: Well, the first places that were actually attacked in Britain were in Scotland, which a lot of people don't actually know. You know, right in the beginning of the war, especially in October, you know, the Germans attacked the naval base at Rosyth, just at the, if you know where the kind of the fancy red rail bridges in the in the Forth Estuary, it's just to the side of that. And the Germans had actually sent reconnaissance planes over and thought they had spot, spotted HMS Hood, so they then sent off over some Junkers to attack it. But strangely enough, as it may seem later in the war, the, the boat that was there was actually the repulse, the HMS repulse, and it was actually docked at Rosyth. And according to what, what historians have now found out, that the, the Luftwaffe pilots were told not to attack the boats in their dock lest they end up having civilian casualties because they were very, very not wanting to actually kill civilians, even though they were trying to attack the shipping. Luckily or unluckily, would you like, that there were also two ships to on the, the other side of the rail bridge, you know, that was the the HMS Edinburgh and HMS Southampton that were birthed there. So the Junker Queens decided to attack them instead. And that was actually the first attack, you know, in Scotland at the naval base there. And that was October 16, 1939. The following day, the Luftwaffe attacked Scapa Flow in the Orkneys, which was also a, a naval base. And all through that early period of the war, you know, the attacks from If you can imagine, round about the Aberdeen to Peterhead, area Fraserburgh, they actually called that Hellfire Corner. There were so many attacks on on, not only shipping, Royal Navy assets, but also just on the towns. So, for example, small towns in the northeast of Scotland, uh, again, example, uh, Peterhead was attacked 28 times by the Luftwaffe, Aberdeen 24 times, and Fraserburgh 23 times. And all around that area was constantly being attacked by the Luftwaffe, who's seen it as a like in an area where the Royal Navy was moving ships up that east coast, specifically up to Scapa Flow. And this actually became worse as the war progressed because if you have, once the Germans invade Denmark and Norway, Scapa Flow becomes the closest area where they're actually transporting troops across or doing a lot of, you know, a lot of naval activity up there. So they, they all become a target for the Germans. And of course, Scapa Flow is a famous Royal Navy base, you know, that was attacked frequently throughout the war.
2: So you hear all of this about you know London and and Coventry and and all these big cities being attacked and bombed and but I I'm going to be honest with you, it, hearing that there are little places like that like t- 24, twenty four twenty eight times you yeah, say. Aberdeen twenty eight, Aberdeen
3: twenty four, Fraserburgh twenty three.
2: You know. Jesus, that's it's incredible, isn't it? When you when you when you think about it in the whole context, yeah. And the
3: first the first German plane downed in British soil was actually just outside Edinburgh. You know, they call it the Humby Heinkel You know, it was actually on an attack again on the fourth yesterday and was shot down by Spitfires, and that was on I think it was the end of October. Do we know if the pilot survived? Uh, do you know there was survivors, but I don't know if the pilot survived.
2: Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we know what's happening in Scotland right now, as in contextually. Yeah,
3: and even even you know the first civilian casualty, the first British civilian casualty, was also in Scotland. You know, it was a guy called yeah, really? it was a guy called James Isbister who was killed in the Orkney Islands. I believe it was in March nineteen forty. And again, it's it's funny enough. That it's it's one of these controversial things because. It was then changed to be someone on the south coast because they were the first person to die on the British mainland rather than the small island that happens to be just off the British mainland, which is, of course, part of Britain. But but he was actually the first person that was killed, you know, and a lot of this wasn't well known at the time, you know, because most of the, the fighting that was actually happening, a lot of it was happening off the northeast coast of Scotland.
2: So, silly question just to throw in this. Is this an official where they say that it was from the mainland and they kind of dismiss the Scottish Isles? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah,
3: it's, you know, you know I mean, I don't know if it, I, I don't believe it came down from the government. It was probably just the media. You know, they're always the first plane, the first this, the first that, and, of course, the first British civilian yeah. casualty, you know, was this man. But technically, that was on the British mainland. Actually, it was a family that was killed by a parachute mine. I think it was Clapham-on-Sea, if I remember right. But the James Espister was actually the first civilian killed by, you know, German attacks in World War II. But he's he's almost kind of airbrushed out of history, you know, for the the one that happened on the mainland.
2: So let's move on to what our main focus really is. And that that is Glasgow. That's where you are right now yes. in Glasgow. Yeah. Glasgow's well, it is a major Scottish city, and it still is a major Scottish city. So it must have clearly also been targeted. So why is this city specifically so important?
3: Well, Glasgow, I mean, Glasgow was a is, a, is an important
2: Scottish city,
3: but we have to think back to the context of Glasgow during World War Two. You know, prior to World War II, Glasgow was often referred to as the second city of the British Empire. And, you know, its involvement in major shipping industries, steelworks, ammunition, all was actually pre-war. You know, obviously it was also a main route, you know, for ships that were involved in the Atlantic convoy and out the North Channel over to the Atlantic. So there's always been, you know, a, Glasgow always played a very important place part. When it comes up to the the start of World War II, you know, the belief is is that the Germans don't have the capability to attack Glasgow because it's out with the range. Which, in the most part, it was in the early, very early parts of the war. So a lot of industry then moves up to Glasgow as well. Glasgow already had a substantial area. I mean, I say Glasgow, I should say Clydeside because it takes in a larger area just in Glasgow City as well. But in Clydeside, there was already a massive uh, shipyard industry, steelworks, munitions, all that. And then as the wars begin to start, they actually increase it and actually send more stuff up there because they believe it's out with the range. What happens very quickly is, is that as the Germans move in to Denmark and Norway, it opens up for planes to be attacking Glasgow, mostly nuisance raids, you know, num- just a couple of planes at a time. It actually increases as uh, the first years of the war go on. There is more attacks with more planes, but it's only after the fall of France that Glasgow can then be a, a more major target. Part of the reason why Glasgow wasn't attacked so much is that they didn't have the, the beam method that the Germans used to actually attack major cities in Coventry and all that stuff didn't actually reach as far as Glasgow in terms to be precision to attack certain targets. But what it did do was it was good for actually finding directions towards Glasgow. So as we move into that springtime of 1941, the Germans have changed their tactics. And instead of you know bombing the, the cities more like Coventry and the airfields and stuff, they're going for more ports because the, the British are, infiltrated their system of uh, beam directions and what they're doing is basically saying well you know we're going to bomb more geographically and moonlight nights and things so we can actually find the targets easier so there's a there's a shift in the Luftwaffe targets in March 1941 to mostly go for coastal cities now cities like Liverpool were always getting bombed but there's an increase after this and of course this is the first time then that Glasgow becomes a target but to give you an idea, in Glasgow alone, there was 46 primary Luftwaffe targets. And Glasgow's not a big city. I mean, it's a, it had a large population, but it doesn't take up a lot of real estate compared to some of the bigger cities that you may have, like London and things like that. But 46 primary targets is a massive amount of targets in one city. And that's just primary targets. You know, you've got everything there from the Royal Navy uh, refueling depot at Dalnotter which is massive for the Atlantic convoy system, all the way down to the shipyards, ammunitions, explosive factories, Rolls-Royce Hillington, which is making Spitfire engines at this point, torpedo factories, you name it, Glasgow's got the lot. But up until March 1941, there wasn't any large-scale bombing that would come along on March 13th.
2: So the bottom line is the people in Glasgow thought that they were safe?
3: Yeah, and not just the people, some of the politicians as well. You know, the, there is numerous quotes and it's quite unfortunate because it happened in early March 1941 where the provost, which is like the mayor of Glasgow, was actually saying things like, you know, Glaswegian tenements, your tenements are a lot stronger than these London ones. They are not going to crumble like some of these London ones were. Oh, God. There were other people out there saying that because Glasgow is in kind of the Clyde Valley with houses on either side, that impeded the Luftwaffe's attempts to actually bomb the city which obviously was not the case. And there were other people, funny enough, there were people who were actually saying to themselves that from crazy rumours that Hitler's nephew lived in Shawlands, which is somewhere in the south side of Glasgow, to just crazy belief that, you know, the Luftwaffe couldn't actually reach them the way they were, you know, because of the geographical and everything else. So it it becomes this strange thing, like, why have we got such, why are we such a target-right city with massive industry and shipyards that the Germans know all about us? why are they not actually attacking us? Well, obviously the mindset was, well, it's because they can, you know, which was obviously very, very wrong.
2: Well, we're about to delve into this. Uh, We're about to delve into what happened in, in March 1941. But before we start talking through exactly what happened on that fateful night of the 13th, Talk to us about your research and about the Clydebank Clyde Bank Blitz because there is a bit of a oh. problem. Oh, you did it. You did it. Well, <laughs> there's, there's... Sorry. There's not, there's,
3: that's okay. There's a few problems. Uh, we have...
2: Clear it up for us. Clear it up for us because right. I've said... I've said the... Have, I've so, so said the wrong word, haven't I?
3: Go you on. You said the bad words, yes. You said the bad word, Alina. You know? Right. In this, if you, do, if you do a Google search and you look up Glasgow in World War II, Glasgow Blitz, it will take you automatically to something that describes the Clydebank Blitz. Now the Clydebank Blitz was the Clydeside Blitz which was the attack in Glasgow in March 13, 14, 15, 1941 because Clydebank is a small town to, on the western side of Glasgow. Now in 1941, people referred to it as the Clydeside Blitz. All throughout, you know, probably right up until the 70s, 80s, people referred to it as the Clydeside Blitz because they acknowledged the fact that the whole of the Clydeside was attacked. And Clyde Bank, being a small town on the west side of Glasgow, really did got blitzed to the point where it was almost destroyed. I think out of 12,000 houses, there were seven that were undamaged due to bomb damage. You know, a population, you know, that was either that was so bombed that most of the people left and didn't actually come back. Clydebank had a far higher population in 1941 than it has ever even reached today. So people were blitzed out, decimated, and there was a massive death toll in Clydebank in terms of population. You know, a large percentage of Clydebank was actually killed. However, the bombings were right along Clyde site. There were more people died in Glasgow than actually died in Clydebank. There were people who died in the south side of the Clyde in Renfrew. There were people who died in Dumbartonshire. But the narrative from probably from the 80s, 90s, moving into 2000s, has become a Clyde Bank-centric. So that if you look, even the the IWM, if you look up the website, they will tell you that about the Clyde Bank Blitz They almost seem to miss the fact that Glasgow got bombed in the exact same nights and more people died in Glasgow. And the same thing is carried through that from 2000 onwards, most of the books that are written are very Clydebank-centric, even to the point where they actually argue that Glasgow was bombed as a mistake because the Germans were determined to bomb Clydebank. And the problem is, is yes, it, they've even went on very lengthy books talking about creepback, you know, the, the, the theory in World War II, of, mostly used to describe the British bombing, where you would get over the target and you would start to bomb. And because you bombed and set fires, the next planes coming behind you would drop the bombs on your fires and it would eventually creep back away from the target. Of course, the British resolved that by having cameras where you had to actually fly steady and take photographs of where you bombed, you know, or it wouldn't be awarded to your mission list. The Germans never did that, but the Germans also were actually pretty good at bombing the targets, especially at that time in the war. And what has happened is, is they have basically argued that everything that landed in Clyde Bank was the target and everything that landed outside of Clyde Bank was a mistake, even though that obviously was not the case. But what you have now is, is that because what happened in Glasgow has virtually been forgotten over the years, even the authorities in Glasgow have no commemorations, memorializations, they don't even talk about it. In fact, they often refer you to oh, nothing happened here, everything happened in Clydebank. You know, which means the people who actually died in Glasgow, they're virtually forgotten. Now, to give you an example, in the first three hours of the attack on March 13, from 9.15 to 12.15 in the morning, there were 25 parachute mines dropped in Glasgow, 95 high explosive bombs, 864 incendiary bombs, and 533 people killed in those three hours. More people died in three hours in Glasgow than died in two days in Clydebank You know, so that gives you an idea of how this has almost been wiped out from history, and it's it's not important
2: that's incredible i mean those kind of statistics i mean this is we literally we're going to come back to this these statistics again um in just a moment but this is something that we need we need to address it. i mean all of us we, we do a job for a reason you know we're there to to flex so for example for me is to, to stop forgetting all the all the victims of the concentration camps you know to commemorate this is something very important to you and i really hope that this will change people's opinions and that you can move forward and you know even get the Imperial War Museum to get themselves so basically sort their shit out.
3: Yeah. Well, every year when it comes around to the anniversary, you know, the March anniversaries, these attacks, in every school, it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter if you're in the north of Scotland, people will be talking about the Claybank Blitz. All the newspapers will be writing stories about the Clydebank Blitz. Even my own daughters who were going to Glasgow school systems were getting taught about the Claybank Blitz. And, you know, strangely enough, my granny, you know, came from Mary Hill in Glasgow and the school she attended was bombed and there were 85 people killed on the second day of the attack. And when I was speaking to people from that school, the kids in that school who actually, the school that they're in has been rebuilt, but that school was bombed. The houses round about it and one Street were totally devastated and destroyed and all these people died in that attack. And these kids don't even know about where the bombs dropped in the school that they were in or the street that their school was in but they know about what happened in Clyde Bank. And that was part of what drove me to actually say, hold on, you know, people need to be aware of the history of where they are and where they live. Instead of, I mean, focus on Clyde Bank, talk about Clyde Bank, talk about the whole blitz. You know, my, my goal here is not to actually dismiss what happened to Clyde Bank and promote what happened to Glasgow. It's to say that in the context of the whole attack, this is what happened. Because yeah. when you read about this and you think about it in the context of the whole attack, it actually elevates this attack to be a major, if not the major, most damaging attack during the Blitz, including London, for the death toll that happened in Glasgow and Clyde Bank, if you combine them.
2: Right, so let's talk about that that night. It's the night of the 13th of March, 1941. Talk us through what happened.
3: Okay. Well, you basically, the, as I said earlier, the, the, there was a shift in... In policy, a shift in tactics from uh, the Luftwaffe, and instead of, you know, using the beam method technology to pinpoint targets and to fly on mass and destroy, you know, like of Coventry and Bristol, Liverpool, and all the the cities that we know of that were were attacked, they decided more to go along the lines of of finding ports. And part of the reason for that was is they were they didn't trust the beam technology anymore. They believed, and rightly so, that the the Britain was actually interfering with it and causing them problems. So what they decided to do was is they, they started to attack Hull more frequently, the south coast England ports, Liverpool get really hammered, you know, in that couple of months period in March, April, May. But they also decided that they were going to have a major attack on side for the first time. So what they did was is they assembled planes coming from, there were three main, what they call Luftloten groups. Uh, in Norway, there was Luftloten 2, sorry, Luftloten 5, East of the Seine River, you know, which included planes from, I know, from the Netherlands, uh, Northwest Germany and France, there was Luft lauten uh,
1: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Luftholotin 2, Luftholotin 3 was west of the Seine up to Brittany. And what they did in this, they, they, they staged a three-pronged attack where you would have flames flying from Norway and Denmark flying over the, kind of east, over the North Sea and east coast of Scotland, you would have planes, planes flying from the Western Germany, uh, the Netherlands and part of France, flying up over between Tyne and Tees, you know, uh, south of Newcastle, north of Middlesbrough, flying in that direction. And from the west, the majority of the planes that were on this attack were flying from the west coast of France, uh, flying up the west coast over Cornwall, Wales. Some of them actually split off and bombed Liverpool, which they had actually bombed the night before. Some people have said it was a kind of decoy, but it wasn't. That was always part of the planning to, to re-bomb Liverpool that second night. But the majority of the, the planes coming up the west coast flew directly up to Glasgow. There, there has been a lot of speculation in a lot of the books about who was there first. You know, A lot of my research has shown that probably the first groups that were there first were the ones coming from Norway and Denmark. You know they were they were coming across there they bombed first the records from the ones coming from uh Germany and uh sort of Netherlands and France they sadly were lost you know during the war but we have decent records for the ones coming from from west of the Seine out to Britain they come up on that west coast and how they bombed but what you have is three different distinct groups that are attacking over a nine hour period at different heights at different targets you know flying up towards the Clyde. Now, what you have is you have, within this group, you have three Pathfinder groups. Normally you would have one, you know, which is a group called KGR 100, which was, was quite well known. They were involved in most of the important raids that we know about, like in Coventry. They were the ones who, who did most of the damage and mapping out the targets. But the Germans had also switched to a different strategy at this point. And in Glasgow, they actually used three Pathfinder groups, but not traditionally as we would think using them. They would come in at different times. They weren't even the first bombers that arrived on the scene. But what they would do was basically target specific targets along the Clyde side. And that would mean that the bombers coming in after them would bomb on between them and on the fires and just continue that trend of bombing within this area. What happens very quickly, though, is, is that Glasgow, for example, didn't really have much of an anti-aircraft defence. Uh, it had anti-aircraft guns, but they weren't very good at shooting down German bombers at night. That's we not also helpful. Had it certainly is not because they ran out of ammunition by half past 10. So within an hour and 15 minutes, the Germans were actually noting that nobody was shooting at them anymore. So therefore, you could actually go lower and find targets better. They also, there were Spitfire groups there, you know, to defend Glasgow, but they were ordered not to attack the German bombers to stay above 20,000 feet, which is very unfortunate when the German bombers are mostly attacking between three and 9,000 meters. So therefore, mm-hmm. they were not even near them and they weren't going below it. One guy did. One guy disobeyed orders and went down and tried to shoot some German planes, but was unsuccessful. But that is kind of, you know, how the the, the attack started. But in that first couple of hours, they were so successful in what they were trying to target and bomb in the area, that the place very quickly became a mess of fire and smoke. So later bombers coming in at 11.30, they actually couldn't actually pick out targets. So what they actually did at that point was switch to secondary targets and they started attacking roads, railways in particular. And that's what actually led to a lot of the casualties and the deaths because they were dropping uh, loaf mines or parachute mines. And these things were floating down, you know, trying to hit a railway line. And it was actually drifting across and landing on tenements, which happened to be adjacent to it. And that problem made up a massive amount of the casualties in Glasgow. Because these things were actually quite devastating, especially when they fall between tenement blocks, because they don't explode an impact. They have a lateral explosion, which means that the, the buildings would just pancake on top of each other or on top of the air raid shelters, where, of course, most people were hiding from the, from the bombing.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
0: J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: I think these are the bombs that kind of shock me the most, Because they're smart, very smart what they did, but nevertheless, they're landing on on homes, on people's houses and taking out so many air raid shelters and causing so much damage and so much death in the space of, what, hours?
3: Yeah, you know, in the space of three hours, you know, the majority of the people who will die in this attack are dead. And it's mostly because they have either killed in the explosion, but most of the time were killed by force uh, falling masonry, you know, concrete houses falling on top of the air raid shelters, which were, were not very good to begin with and certainly wouldn't protect you from a house tenement falling on top of you in the back. But the first bomb that actually landed in Clydeside on these nights was actually a parachute mine that landed in Bankhead Primary School in Drumchapel, which is an area of Glasgow. And it actually, unfortunately, it also was like an ARP station. So it was full of uh, firemen, ARP, uh, nurses, you know, first aid people. And there were about 100 people in the school area. 46 actually were killed outright when this, this bomb landed on top of the school.
1: Jesus. You know,
3: thankfully, being in nighttime, of course, there was no kids in the school. But it was, you know, mostly people who were there to actually help during an air raid. You know, so the people who are the ARP, the wardens who are out there helping people, the the fire engines who are putting out fires, the nurses and people like that who are giving first aid to people, that was wiped out right away. So, and what happens when the Germans attacked Glasgow was, is there was a massive breakdown in communication, because we we live in a, an age where we can contact people quite easily, but in those days it was telephones, is the only thing you had, and they they put a lot bit of thought into it. They said that we. In the event of the telephone system going down, we will use schoolboy messengers, basically young 14-year-old boys who would ride about on bikes and take messages from A to B when needed. And of course, you plan these things, but, you know, when it actually happens and your city's been bombed and there's fires and explosions everywhere, you're then expecting 14-year-old boys to be out there actually taking messages back and forth. And it was actually a number, there was four of them actually killed doing that job, you know, trying to actually help other people by cycling messages back and forth, warning about fires and stuff. The problem is, is when you're coming in to bomb a city, they, you know, like we, the Allies became very good at this. The Germans were good at it at the beginning. They had a methodology for how they would attack a city. So if you can imagine the air raid siren going off and you start to drop small, high exposure lots of them, 50-kilogram bombs, not the biggest of bombs, but you can drop multiples of them. And then you start to drop incendiary bombs, you know, which are dropping in the hundreds. So you're basically having small explosions where the firemen and everybody else would be getting into bomb shelters and you're setting fires. Then when these people are coming back out again to actually try and put out the fires, you've got an X-wave coming in that's dropping higher, heavy explosive, 250 kilograms, 500 kilogram bombs. So obviously this is actually killing the workers who are actually going out there to try and put out fires. Future Bombing waves coming in are dropping parachute mines and incendiary bombs. So the parachute mines open up, or it's a horrible way to explain it, but they open up the houses. They they make it able so that the incendiary bombs can then land and set fire to furniture and inside the houses. Because as we as the Allies found out in German cities, bombing dropping heavy bombs, you know, does damage, but fires do a lot more damage. And the Germans were very well aware of this as well. And that is what actually happens is, is the intention is, is to open up the houses, get them all set in fire, and that destroys all the structures below. But meanwhile, when people are trying to put out these fires, you're also dropping bombs on top of them in the hope that you'll chase them back underground again. You let the incendiary bombs, which they dropped, I mean, they've got almost 60,000 incendiary bombs dropped in Clydeside in these two nights. So the intention was to burn as much as they possibly could. You know, and that that was is what happened is that fire spread everywhere. And when you're dropping a lot of these heavy bombs, you're also breaking up water lines, for example, communication lines. So very quickly in Clyde Bank, for example, they don't even they can't even follow the what the government advice is, is for recording these bomb drops and all these incidents happening because the whole infrastructure breaks down. They have one working telephone, so they have no water supply because one of the bombs lands in Kilbowie Road and breaks a major water supply and it means that none of the fire engine pumps will work. So there's also the problem of logistics when they they actually get fire engines to come from Glasgow and other cities to come and help them. The firemen don't know where to put their pipes in because they don't know where the water hydrants were because they weren't painted different colours in those days so they would stand out. And people don't know where they are, and there's no way of communicating to them how they can assist in actually putting out fires. So you can see how very quickly that all of this great planning before the war totally just went. You know, as soon as the first chaos. bomb started dropping. It's... Yes, and that's the one thing we you know, after the war we all hear about the that stiff upper lip and how everybody pulled together and everybody else when in reality there was a lot of brave people did a lot of brave things, but the the whole communication, the whole ability to actually fight and do stuff just went to pot, especially in March in Scotland.
2: So you just mentioned obviously this was not the only night of bombing, so there was a second night, which is the fourteenth. Um the death count wasn't as high this time, however, on the 14th no. as it was on the 13th. And they also ended up sending a, a recon plane in the morning of the 14th to check the damage. Well, what, what was the overall damage at this stage before we even hit the second night?
3: Well, there, were, there was major damage to the Royal Navy uh, oil factory at Dalnotter, which actually you know, was refueling the ships. There was major damage to that. I think there was about eight tanks that were on fire. Some of them that would burn for a few days, some of them that were putting flumes of smoke and fire, you know, hundreds of feet into the air. So very easy for the Germans to find their, their way back. But what happened in the first night was is that when the planes were coming in, the the very early on, they managed to hit a couple of distilleries. And they hit Singer's Timberyard, the, you know, the famous the sewing machine factory that was actually containing lots of wood for the, the war effort as well and also Dalnotter, and it, it made a straight line of fires, which made it very easy for German bombers to come in to say, okay, this line of fire is where it's marked, and that's where we're going to drop our bombs. And incidentally, that is part of the reason why Clyde Bank was damaged so much. There is, a lot of these books have tried to portray the idea that the Germans were singly tar- targeting Clyde Bank. That is not actually true. It's, uh, Clyde Bank was destroyed almost by accident, You know, because there was five primary targets in Clyde Bank. That the Germans know about compared to 41 targets in the rest of Glasgow. So what happened was, is because the the guys that did the, the Luftwaffe had did their job very well in marking this straight line. A lot of German planes that came in afterwards just dropped the bombs and run because they knew that in this area there was, you know, targets, and they assumed that that was marked for the to bomb. And again, this is why it caused so much damage in Clydebank in the first night. On the second night, what happens is, is most of the people just go away. You know, the people, they're expecting a second night of bombing because that is normally what the Germans do, at least it's one, two. You know, because you've marked a lot of the targets, there's going to be fires and then you go back and bomb them in the second night. It makes it easier to actually find the target when there's still all these fires burning. And what happens is, is the people in Clydebank just basically flee Clydebank. They they get out however they can. The corporation of the area of Clydebank and Glasgow put on buses to move people to Dumbartonshire, Stirlingshire, Renfrewshire, anywhere that is not got a lot of targets, not got a lot of people, just to get these people out of the way. And that is what's hap- that's what's happening in Clyde Bank. So in the second night when they come along, the Germans are actually purposely realising the reconnaissance plane comes over and says, OK, we, we hit here, 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 but we missed Hillington, Rolls Royce in the south side. We missed the explosive factory. We need to go back and actually target these targets. They want to do more damage to Dalnotta, the the... You know the Royal Ordnance Factory and all these other shipyards. With the feel that they didn't do as good a job, in the light of day when they look the next day with a reconnaissance plane. So when they come over the next day, they're actually targeting. You know, more, They're targeting uh, Rolls Royce and Hillington, and what happens is is that although these bombs are dropped here, these places are more kind of to the extremities of the city. So there's not actually more bombs dropping in the middle of the Clyde Bank or more bombs dropping in Glasgow as there were in the previous night. There was actually some uh, parachute mines. There was actually as many parachute mines dropped in the second day as there was in the first day, but there was not as much a death toll because, again, people fled knowing what was coming. And as soon as people found out that it was happening again, of course, people were underground and staying out of the way. You know, one of the the one I, I spoke to you about earlier about One Street where my granny went to school, that was on the second night, you know, and that's just a case of which often happened quite often that these parachute mines were dropped two at a time and they would blow in the wind, of course, off target. They were aiming for, at that time, they were aiming for a chemical works and it blew across the road in a major kind of suburb of Glasgow and exploded, you know, one on the school roof and one in the field behind it. You know, so there was less death toll because people were more bunkered down and obviously had left the city as well, terrified because of what happened the
2: first night. I mean, this is absolute devastation over two days, over the 13th and 14th of of March. I mean, clearly this must have been recorded in the newspapers and it must have gone through Britain like absolute wildfire. So how was this attack perceived by the British media and what was the aftermath like?
3: Well, that's, that's another one of these troubling uh, things about the, the attacks on Clydeside. Initially, the, the media, of course, bear in mind, were at wartime and censorship is high. So they very rarely named when places were actually getting attacked. But what happened was, is very quickly, within a day, they spoke about a minor attack on Clydeside. There are obviously, people living in Clydeside, watching what's going on in, in front of them, Clyde, I mean Clyde Bank is damaged, but it looks like one of these World War II, you know, German cities at the end of the war when you always see is all these broken houses and destroyed things causing all the fire and destruction. And people are told that this was a minor attack. So very early on, people are actually quite annoyed because they see, although they understand, you know, that you don't want to be given the Germans information, at the same time, it's like this is not a minor attack. In fact, when they started releasing the death tolls, the numbers were so low that people were actually very upset about it, including local MPs and government ministers. People were saying, no, you can't do this because if you play down the numbers, people are less likely to believe it's in the future. And what happens is, is there was one report came out initially that said that there was 100 people had died in Clybank. And the response to that from a policeman was in what Street. Um, which is quite apt because there was streets where there were over 100 people killed, you know, in Clydebank and in Glasgow. So right away, people are getting annoyed at this. And as you move out of these attacks in March, there was also subsequent attacks in April, which didn't really do as much damage. And then another heavy attack in March, which actually attacked further down the Clyde towards Greenock and Greenock and Glasgow. They were the main targets in that attack. So a lot of this is Clydebank is actually in Glasgow, is actually just trying to recover and still recovering bodies when the Germans hit again in April, and still recovering bodies when the Germans hit again in May, so there is a total panic in, in the Clydeside area because they realize that not only can the Germans hit us, but the, the first attack basically decimated us, and they're concerned about people moving out of Clydebank. and bear in mind there's, there's a lot of shipyards and industrial workers in Clydebank and Glasgow. The fear is if these people move out, they may never go back to work. You know, and these are important for the work for the war effort. So there's a whole lot of propaganda going on. There's a whole lot of stories going on as we progress out of the that period. You know, in April, and it's one of the controversies about this is that if you look at how many people died in Clydebank, the official toll was 528 people died in Clydebank. The initial number was 100 and something, and then as it moves along, every time people are arguing and saying what happened, you know, why there's not. There's a lot more people than this died. The government's upping the figures a little bit. Eventually, we get to this point where, you know, in March, in, I think it was the Sunday Post or the Sunday Mail, a Scottish newspaper, uh, a year after the event basically specified that there were over 1,200 people died in Clyde Bank. Not Clydeside, ah. in Clyde Bank. And that, again, made it, you know, people became very upset by this because they're saying, this is the real figures, and you guys are lying to me, lying to us. Such was the, you know, the uproar and the, the the belief that a lot more people died in these attacks than the government actually said, that when this story ran with this number, people automatically assumed that was the true number, because there were so many people had left and so many people they know had died. So what happens is, as you're moving out of this, you've got 528 people died in Clyde Bank. And this constantly changes. For a few years, there's a lot of inquiries after the war even where people are asking, the council are asking, that's number that you have for Clydebank Bank. It's not right. We know it's a lot more. And every time they actually investigate the numbers, it changes and it goes up the way. And the 528 is the official final figure that we have for Clydebank. Bank. But interestingly, in Glasgow, Glasgow is a bit different. In Glasgow, from the 1st of April, there's 651 deaths that are noted. And it's never been changed. 651 deaths were noted in April 1941, and they have never re-evaluated the figures. So they've kept that figure right from April 1941. Now, there were over 1,500 people seriously injured, not just injured, seriously injured, that were shipped to hospitals all around that area of Stirlingshire, everywhere else. And a lot of my research has found that a lot of these people died two, three months. There were some people who even died two years later. They were not recorded oh, wow. in the official death toll by enemy action. They died because they never came out of a coma two years later in a hospital in Stirling. But the reason they were there was is because they were in Glasgow when they got bombed. But the figures have never been changed. So when you do the sum, I made a statement earlier that I know some people will go, no way that's true. Because you believe it not to be true because you've never heard it. But when you total the amount of people who were actually killed in Clydeside from these attacks, it's the official total, not might be total, the official total is over 1200 people, which makes it one of the the most deadly attacks, if not the most deadly attack in World War Two history, when it came to the Luftwaffe bombing British cities, sorry, British cities. But what happens is, is when nobody talks about it, if the IWM doesn't put it on its website of blitz cities, it doesn't exist. And that's a problem
2: this is something you've got to change you've got to change the statistic so that would be absolutely if you could actually pull off the rest of this uh, this research of being able to work out exactly who died when in hospitals and and whatnot that would be an amazing that'd be an amazing achievement that you've managed to change the statistic that hasn't changed since april
3: 1941 yeah and a lot a lot a lot part of what i started off doing with this is, is because of my grandmother. My grandmother, she only passed away 18 months ago, but she, as I said, she went to that school with Mary Hill, and she spoke constantly about the war. Constantly to him, growing up. So it, it put a passion, you can probably hear it. it, I'm impassioned to make sure that this stuff is recorded. You know, and a lot of things that I've did is, you know, I actually have a bomb map like of Glasgow with all and Clydeside of all the bombings that actually happened where these bombs dropped. And I'm hoping by the end of my research that I can actually give that to the city of Glasgow or give it to anybody you know who will actually make it a, a focus where people can actually go along and click where they live and see where these people you know, died in Clydeside because we have all the names and the details and where these bombs dropped and I think that's an important part of changing that narrative that people can actually see, oh I live in this street and this street was bombed, I never knew this street was bombed and that's the thing, a lot of people in Glasgow because there hasn't been a lot of focus on it don't know what actually happened in their own city. 80 years ago, except if they were told by family members if they lived in that same area. Now, in Clydebank, it's different because it became part of almost the national psyche of Clydebank, being a very small Mm. town that was devastated, and it was. There's no denying that. It was devastated in that attack. But it became part of the national psyche that everybody knows about it and everybody commemorates it and memorialises it. In Glasgow, no, never happens, which is very sad
2: You've got our backing, Mark. We, we would love to, to to help you out any way we can because this is, you know, it is such an important cause and people should know the history of where they live and where they come from and what their families went through. I mean, somebody could find out something interesting like their great uncle died in the bombing or, you know, somebody they know that th- that was injured. It's it's so fascinating, your research. I absolutely love it. Well, thank you very much, Alina. Mark, that was so insightful, and I've learned so much. I didn't, I knew so little about what was happening in Scotland at the time of the Blitz, and you've taught me so much. And I hope people have enjoyed listening listening to this podcast because it is so important to be able to get the narrative right instead of you know keeping statistics from April 1941. I mean, I'm at, my mind is blown. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on. I thoroughly enjoyed it, Elena.
0: You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work on quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look, do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it.
4: When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history. Or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support. And here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.